Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Ezra chapter 1, and Ezra... If you don't know where that is, it's in the Old Testament. We go through Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and you'll land right into Ezra. There's 10 chapters in there. So Ezra chapter 1. Well, the last time we looked at uh, the last chapter of Philippians, and that's what we've been doing. New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, so that we get a real good balanced diet of God's Word from start to finish. And I'm going to talk to you about how, as we put God's Word together, uh, as we study these books, how we can draw from them in everyday life. So we covered Philippians 4 the last time, and it basically was nine takeaways for a successful Christian walk. Um, something that the Apostle Paul written thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago, could he have ever imagined that it would impact us so greatly today? The Holy Spirit knew, but I don't think that Paul could have conceived of this. So if you weren't here, make sure you get that message. Uh, it's something that, it, it's a timeless message for believers in how to again have a successful Christian walk. Today we're going to be in Ezra 1 and 2 and this morning as always as I do cover a new book uh, what we do is we give you an overview okay and the tag for this book is breaking new ground with God so overview I'll go through some of it and then we'll jump into the actual message so Ezra his name was basically the Aramaic form of Ezer, which means help or Yahweh or God helps. And Zerubbabel and Ezra, two main characters in this book, are really going to need God's help. Uh, Ezra tells the story of repatriation uh, when the children of Israel and Judah were expatriated because of the, the conquests of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And this is all, you can take what I'm saying Go home, put it up to your secular encyclopedias and find everything that I'm saying is in there. So basically you have this situation where there's a siege, Babylon against Jerusalem. They, they beat the snot out of them pretty much. Take the people captives, expatriate them to the Babylonian Empire. Then some time passes and the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And they actually repatriate the children of Israel back to Jerusalem and Judah. So basically, I'm going to read to you a historical account that sets the stage for why the children of Israel, the Israelites, are in this position to begin with. So if you turn with me to 2 Chronicles, which actually is just behind Ezra, depending on your Bible, it might be one or two pages behind. And basically, I'm going to read the spiritual and political situation in Judah before the Babylonians came under Nebuchadnezzar and pretty much made a mess of their, their country. So starting with verse 14, 2 Chronicles 36, it says, Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people, I'll do a short commentary too, the priest, the religious system, the spiritual system, and the people. The corruption had gotten through everything, unfortunately, like a cancer. Transgressed or sinned more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them. See, warnings are love. Sometimes people today, they get annoyed when they're talked to or lightly chastised and say, hey, this is, I've just given you a warning that you're going to ruin your life doing this. 
So warning is love. God warns them by his messengers, who the prophets, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people. So behind warnings, motivation is love, compassion. The Lord didn't want his people to ruin their lives. He had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Not a good place to be. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, or Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary, had no compassion on the young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And the articles from the house of God, many of them were valuable, they were lined with gold and such, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon, to the victor go the spoils. A lot of, we have a few military people in here this morning. You understand, probably be very interested in this ancient history, these battles, and what, what takes place. 19, they burnt the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burnt all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious, precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, changing of hands. Everybody thinks that they're the new bully on the block until somebody bigger and stronger comes and takes them over. And there was just a lot of this mess going on in the Middle East back then. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the prophet, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath, and as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. If you remember, if you're a student of the Bible, um, basically God said, every seventh year, leave the land fallow. Trust me, I'll give you such an abundance in the sixth year, you won't have to worry, but they didn't listen to God. They did what they wanted with his land. And it's kind of funny because today we look at over-farming and how it depletes the nutrients of the soil. You know, God's, God's prophecies, God's principles are timeless. There's microbiology in the scripture, there's astronomy, there's all kinds of stuff. And when the flat earthers were around, the Bible said the earth was round. And even in the church there were flat earthers, but it's because they weren't reading their Bibles. You know, very simple. A lot of science in here. So basically what happens is uh, this sinful condition causes God to remove his protective hand. The Babylonians come, and that's the end of it. So we see Second Chronicles. We see they reference Jeremiah. Jeremiah is warning the people, don't resist Nebuchadnezzar. This is God's chastisement. Didn't listen, made it worse. Uh, you know that this Ezra is in here. Esther comes afterwards, and I'm doing this chronologically, and then Nehemiah, which we went through just before Philippians. So if we could put up image number two, image number two, and this is basically, it's a little cartoon, but it's the, the repatriation from the Persian Empire back to, across the Tigris and the Euphrates westward, back to Jerusalem. And you just see, it's kind of neat, it gives like the three waves. Zerubbabel, covered in Ezra 1 through 6, uh, he comes back under Cyrus to rebuild the temple. And then Cyrus, there's a, the project is interrupted, but then Darius comes in and he says, okay, you can start finishing up the temple. Um, Esther, if you remember, we covered the book of Esther. She's right in between here chronologically, gets married to Xerxes. The second wave is under Ezra, repatriation, another few thousand people go back to Jerusalem. For what? Basically to change the spiritual situation. So we have a church here. It's a building. There's a cross. Doesn't mean that we're all wonderful people in here. Does, any, any, does that mean that in any church? So what goes on in inside and inside our hearts is 
more important actually than the accoutrements, than the outside stuff. So uh, Ezra actually comes back, we see him introduced in Ezra 7 through 10, and he goes back to try to change the hearts of the people. And then the third wave of repatriation is under Artaxerxes, and that's where Nehemiah comes in, okay, which we covered two books ago, and he builds the walls and the gates. So you can see this interesting situation. Basically, uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra had a, a difficult job because one to two generations of Israelites or Judahites were in a pagan land and they started to get infected by the pagan culture and the idolatry and they were comfortable and they didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. Many did, but many did not. And I have to say that unfortunately in Western Christianity, sometimes Christians can be infected by the culture. And, and you find churches all around the United States in Western culture that are infected by the prosperity gospel and a lot of this stuff that, you know, it's what they want to hear. Uh, but there's idolatry that comes into there and all kinds of things. Um, some Western Christians are so immersed in American culture, it's becoming very decadent. It's becoming a very anti-God and idolatrous culture. And there's Christians who, when they hear about the rapture and the Lord coming at any moment to take us out before the implosion of the, of the culture and the uh, world in the book of Revelation, it bothers them. You know, some believers, to explain to them that they're just pilgrims passing through this earth and we're really, we need to be heavenly minded, it irritates them. My voice is irritating. But it isn't my voice. Actually, I have a nice voice. It's the scripture that I'm reading that irritates them. It's like nails on a chalkboard. It rubs them the wrong way. So we can take something that happened thousands of years ago and make an application today. Show me any church in any culture in any era and I'll show you an infection that tries to get in by the culture into the church. That's what Satan's design is. Not always an easy job to motivate people to get back to their spiritual roots. Now, Ezra was a priest, he was a scribe, but he was also a pioneer and he was a motivator and he had to be. Time period of Ezra, very interesting, 5th century B.C., for those of you that are interested. So what else is going on in the world at this time? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Basically, close to this time period, Gautama Buddha is in India. Right? It's going on at the same time, contemporaneous. Confucius is in China. Socrates is in Greece. So almost you have, in this time period, you have a, a ph ph philosophical renaissance going on. Just for your interest, right? Well, what happened? How do you, that's how it lines up. Basically, um, we're going to cover this because, because I believe in, the pastors and the leaders here believe in getting a diversity of God's word. That's how we grow, right? There's a lot of articles that say Christians don't know their Bibles. And I think a lot of that has to do with the culture, the distractions. Who's ever seen it like this? You, you, you know, you've got you know, all these devices all over us, these electronic devices, and they're always going off and telling us something. And then they tell us about social media, that something's popped up, and you've got to respond to that and like that. And, you know, it's just crazy. You, we're just constantly being distracted. You know, when my wife and I go out to dinner, we talk. <laughs> and sometimes there's people around, and they don't talk at all. They're just looking down the whole time. Why go out to dinner? You know what I'm saying? Um, go to the drive-thru. I mean, the Go out to dinner, you, you talk to each other, you know, you communicate. And I, I think communication is lost in our culture. I believe that that's a, that's a problem. It's, a, it's, it's coming with a lot of this electronic stuff. But the other issue is, is distractions for Christians. 
You know, are we reading our Bibles? Are we meditating? Are we praying and actually listening to what God's trying to say to us? Or are we always being distracted? Uh, sometimes it's good to just get out of the house and find a secluded place and be alone with the Lord, you know, so you can hear him. <laughs> God's not going to shout at us. He's got that gentle voice that we have to relax and be in tune to listen to his voice. What is he trying to say to me? And we're going to talk about God's will as well. So the tag for this uh, book is Breaking New Ground with God, if we could put up the first image. Actually, I purposely picked that because it looks sad. You got a guy on his horse or his donkey, and he's come back to Jerusalem, and he sees the ruins at Jerusalem. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, all three men at different times came back to Jerusalem and saw a mess. Each man tried to help change things and rebuild things, but, you know, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make to you is that, is that sometimes we think that following God is a glamorous thing. Sometimes we think when we become Christians, everything becomes easier. It, it's not, it doesn't. It doesn't. Sometimes, well, many times when we become Christians, things become more difficult. For a business owner, you know, we, we say, well, I really want to be ethical, and I really... And we should want to be ethical. I don't want to cut corners. I just want to do right by God if we're, you know, maybe in a crowd that's messed up. And we have to ask ourselves, do I want to stay with this crowd? I mean, how can I follow God and be with this crowd at the same time? Um, and will they respect me if I say I don't want to do that anymore? So all these ethical and moral dilemmas come up. Then when God asks us actually to do something, we can say, gee, that doesn't sound like fun. Gee, you know, I had my hobbies, I had my, my this, I had my lifestyle, and God's interrupting all of that. And there's a crossroads for us as believers. Do we follow what God wants or we do just do what we want? Do we want to just enjoy all the things of the world and just get to the finish line, which is heaven? Again, the finish line is not for a while, okay? When we become Christians, we actually, that's when we're starting our life. We're starting our spiritual life. So where does, Pastor Joe, where do all these books come in when we study these books? Well, during a crisis, we cull joy from Philippians. We talked about Philippians, very uplifting message. That's what we call joy from Philippians. When we're looking for leadership, right, we call leadership skills from Nehemiah. When we want to break new ground with God or God's calling us to do something, we study the book of Ezra and it helps us to get a better understanding. Is this really from God or am I just hearing things that I'm suggesting to myself? And that's how the word of God does help us. Image three, if we could put up image three. Okay. This isn't, this isn't going to be easy. You know, today we have uh, planes, we have trains, we have boats. And they had boats back then, but they didn't have trains and planes. Uh, and if you look at here, this Persia and Media, under Cyrus the Great, conquered all this land. So here's the Tigris and the Euphrates. This is actually Iraq. This is Iran. This is Israel, this is Egypt, this is Syria, this is Jordan, this is Saudi Arabia. I've studied this, I could just do this in my sleep. But basically, this is where it all started. And I, I suggest that this is something we should know, because this is where it's all going to end as well, if you read the book of Revelation. It all happens in this area. Okay? Persia is now Iran. Um, she's going to have a huge part of end times prophecy. You see that the Western powers are being deceived and building her up, and we're playing right into the hands of end times prophecy. I can go on and on about prophecy. A lot of stuff going on. 
So basically, you have the situation over here. Susa was the、uh, seat of the empire of the Persians government, and、uh, you got these. There's mostly like a wasteland kind of over here. So what they would do is to go to Jerusalem. They couldn't go straight. They would go up up the Fertile Crescent, and then make their way down from Syria. Eight hundred, nine hundred miles. Not an easy trip. Not an easy trek. Again, when God calls us to do something and is difficult, He often does it so that we can grow and mature and trust Him more. How how hard is it to trust Him, or how easy is life when everything's done for us, right? Everything's at our fingertips. When we really understand trusting God is when we go through a trial. That's when our faith really becomes serious. We either believe this stuff, or we don't, and our actions will will display that. So the mandate to do God's will. I'll leave you with one more thing, and then we'll go through a, a quick timeline, and then we'll jump into the、uh, chapter. I hear people say, and it's legitimate most of the time. So I prayed about something, and I'm waiting for a piece of God. In Christianity, sometimes we use a lot of cliches. I'm waiting for the peace of God to fill my house, and then I'll know it's right. Well. I was reading about a missionary family that left South Africa, and went to Afghanistan to be missionaries. And the wife was all for it, husband, two kids, and、um, she tells her story in the Voice of the Martyrs, which is a periodical we get about how terrorists came and murdered her family, and she was the only one left. She came home and found the place in flames. Sometimes God's will. You know, a lot of those of Afghanistan. We had missionaries that were in Afghanistan, different family. Um, and it was hard. They were hunted by the secret police. They had to bury their Bibles in the ground.、Um, you know, a lot of cultural Christians will go, "I didn't feel the peace of God wash over me." Well, of course you're not. You know what I'm saying? It's life, life change. It's dangerous. It's a lot of things.、Um, it has to be not emotional, but it has to be supernatural. And sometimes we we suggest things to ourselves emotionally, so that we always do things that are comfortable and easy. And that's not necessarily what God wants us to do. So the last thing we'll look at is if we could put up image four, the timeline, so that you have a full foundation of what we're talking about before we jump in. So 605 BC,、um, Nebuchadnezzar comes. He's at the gates of Jerusalem, and the first he, he obviously breaks through. The first Jewish exiles deported to Babylon, including the royal family and the temple vessels. The scripture tells us this. Cyclopedia also tells us this. Um, this is this is what I call undulating besiegements. In other words,、uh, the Judahites, instead of listening to Jeremiah and submitting, they kept ticking、um, Nebuchadnezzar, ticking him off, and he got madder and madder. And he kept coming. A few years later, 597 BC, then he deported the second group to Babylon: 7,000 men of might, 1,000 craftsmen. 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar is completely fed up. With the Judahites, and、uh, he does some horrible things. Third deportation to Babylon, Jerusalem is destroyed. I'm going to come back to this, and、um, he destroys the whole temple and he burns everything with fire, and it's not pretty. And this was a very depressing situation. The poor were left behind. The Bible said every culture take care of the poor. Well, you know that's somebody else's job. It's the government's job. It's the church's job. As Christians, if we see a need and we can help, we should be helping. But back in the day,、uh, the the Israelites became so proud, so lifted up, and they forgot the poor. 
And I find it remarkable that all thousands of people, tens of thousands of people were taken to Babylon and the poor were left. Nebuchadnezzar probably looked at them. They were in tatters. They were malnutrition. He probably thought they were more of a liability. The ironic thing is they got to stay behind and enjoy the vineyards and the land and all that kind of stuff. So God has a way of equalizing things. So the poor were left behind. And uh, when a lot of the rebellious and the nobility and the aristocracy was removed, they got to enjoy the land, at least somewhat. 539 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon, right? Bel, Belshazzar is the last king in Babylon. Um, Cyrus comes to go under the gates of Babylon. Uh, the, the, the mighty Euphrates River is diverted, and every, they're having a drunken party. Uh, Persia comes in, wipes them out. So Persia now is the new bully in town. They conquer Babylon, 538 B.C. Not even one year later, Cyrus issues a decree to the Jewish exiles, allowing them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Remarkable, and we're going to talk about that. Next one. Next slide. 537 B.C., about 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem, led by Zerubbabel and Joshua. Remember, this is under the new leadership under Cyrus. 536 B.C., foundation of the temple laid. Uh, 536 to 520, the work is interrupted because of official opposition. 520 B.C., remember, when we go to the lower numbers in B.C., we're, we're coming towards the present. You go further back, and the numbers are higher, that's further into the past, just B.C. and A.D. and how that works. Uh, 520, work resumed ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets. 515 B.C., the temple's completed. 458 B.C., Ezra arrives in Jerusalem. And 444, which we read, Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, rebuilds the walls and the gates. And so you had your first temple, it's destroyed. You have the second temple, uh, Herod renovates it. That's destroyed by the Romans in the Roman-Jewish War of 66 to 70 AD. And that's, the Bible says, Revelation says, there'll be a third temple. And they're already starting to make plans to build it. That tells you that we're being pushed into end times prophecy. People say it can never happen because Muslim opposition. You wait and see. It's, it's getting there. Okay? Um, so they're already discussing that. All right, so jumping in Ezra, verse 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah, okay, Chronicles, Ezra, now referencing Jeremiah, might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, I'm going to go into the proclamation, go into your encyclopedia, you'll find this proclamation. Uh, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me and has commanded me to build him a house or a temple at Jerusalem, which was in Judah. Who is there among you? Of all his people, may his God be with him. Now let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever remains in any place, wherever he sojourns, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, because the free will offering of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So the decree of Cyrus, 586 B.C., allows the Jews to go back with huge numbers the first deport or expatriation um, or repatriation, excuse me, and do this, build this temple. For those of you that were with us in the Daniel study, which was f- fantastic, 
um, just great book, you can see some similarities between Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. Um, they both seem to, at some point in their life, have an affinity towards God, which is remarkable. In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar gives great glory to God. He was a real creep in the beginning, believe me. <laughs> but he was a changed man over time. The Lord worked with him. Um, some could say I might have been a real creep before I was a Christian. But that's what the Lord does. You know, the Lord changes people. That's the beautiful thing about God. It doesn't happen overnight. But you look at 10, 20 years down the road, and the person should start to change and move towards being more like Christ and less like the world. One could come to the conclusion that Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar eventually get saved. On the other hand, and this is speculation, Cyrus might have looked at the Lord God of everything, the real God, as one of the chief deities and added him to his pantheon because they were polytheistic. Well, we like that God too, the God of the Israelites. But he seems to be like the big one, so we're going to put him at the head of the line. Again, still polytheistic. We either worship God, we can't worship God and other gods. It's got to be God alone. Um, so, but it does seem that maybe later in life, Cyrus starts to change. And eventually he does get rid of that pantheon and then just worships God, the God that we know. I'll say this, that it's, it's hard for those of authority, power, and wealth to submit to God because of the word submit. See what I'm saying? A powerful people, Jesus said it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to get in heaven. Doesn't, matter, doesn't mean that they don't get in heaven. They do. But it's very difficult because their riches sometimes and are, are something that they lean on instead of God. That's the thing that keeps them going. On the other hand, the average churchgoer may go back and forth between God and the things of the world. And hopefully they get it right before they die. You know, we have to be careful of reading the scripture and saying those people, that guy. The scripture is a mirror to our soul. When we look at the scripture, if we're doing it right, we're saying, well, what is the application for my life? So there are plenty of people that aren't wealthy, have power or conquerors, but they just go back and forth between the things of God and the things of the Lord. And I can tell you something, that becomes very unfulfilling after a while. But what can we say? What we can say is that if God wants something done, especially fulfillment of prophecy, he's going to make it happen, and he did in this situation. So let's look at this. Um, when we look at the scripture, Jeremiah 25, 1 through 14, amazingly enough, before it happens, that's what prophecy is. God says an event will happen, a hundred years, a thousand years, many years before the event actually takes place. So in Jeremiah 25, 1 through 14, if you're taking notes, God says, I will use King Nebuchadnezzar, it's also in the book of Habakkuk, I will use him as my instrument to chastise my people. And he did. Uh, Isaiah 44, 28 through 45, 1. God also says, now I'm going to use Cyrus as my instrument to conquer Babylon and show mercy on my people because they have repented and I have forgiven them and I'm going to have them send them back. There's a scripture that's so powerful, Proverbs 21.1. It says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of waters, he turns it wherever he wishes. It's pretty powerful. The Roman historian Josephus, right? First century Roman historian. He said that, and you can, you can find this, that Cyrus, as he goes, you know, these Military leaders, they were very prideful men. They would conquer this place and they would march on their horses, you know, they would ride on their horses and, you know, I'm the king, worship me. 
when he went to Jerusalem, the well, it's just, we also believe that Daniel did this as well. They found the ancient prophecies in Isaiah and said to Cyrus, look, your name is in our scripture. And it freaked them out in a good way. He goes, how could this be? It's mentioned, it mentioned Cyrus by name. So very, very powerful. So Cyrus, it's believed that that starts to change his heart to realize, wow, the God of these people is somebody I need to pay attention to. Then you say, well, so then why, why did you guys get conquered if your God is so great? Well, he could also read that God said, I'm going to chastise my people for their wickedness and their rebellion against me. Wow, that's impressive too. And, and then I'm here and this was written before I was born. So, you know, I love to throw uh, history in there as well. Uh, Jeremiah also says, again, that in 70 years that the people would be sent back to, to Jerusalem. And for the skeptic, finally... If we could put up image five, the one with the uh, Cyrus cylinder, there it is. It's in a museum now, but this is a 6th century BC clay cylinder found while excavating Babylon, or better known as Iraq, in 1879. This cylinder, when translated, praises Cyrus the king as a great human rights uh, activist, so to speak, as the king. Um, he did conquer, and the Persians were very different than the Babylonians. They would conquer the people and then want the people to somewhat be happy with them. Well, at least the initial kings, uh, conquerors anyway. So if this is, this is translated, it speaks about Cyrus's human rights endeavors. It also speaks of him returning peoples beyond the Tigris and rebuilding their temple. <laughs> I just always love to throw stuff in there for skeptics, and ironically enough, the skeptic and the Bible student love this stuff for different reasons. Hopefully the skeptic realizes, you know what, there is something to the Bible, all the stuff I heard. And that's the problem. You even hear, you, sometimes you send your kids to a secular college and you got these, I'm going to try to be nice, Holy Spirit, stop the words. You got these professors that are, to me, they're bullies. And basically, if you're a person of faith, they need to try to belittle you. And if you try to respond to them, uh, they'll, they'll give you a bad grade. I'm telling you, this happens all the time. But they try to take young, impressionable minds in the college and take their faith away. It's because they're usually not challenged by somebody who knows what they're talking about. Some are, and they usually end up getting a C or a D. But this stuff is out there. Um, it's fascinating. So for the Bible student and skeptic alike, and I'll just give you some quick figures here, uh, the 70-year captivity was, can be calculated in two ways. The 606 to 605 Babylonian invasion, First deportation, 70 years later, you're at 536 B.C., the first exile's return. 70 years, exactly. You can look at it this way, 586 B.C., the later destruction of Jerusalem, uh, the last deportation, 70 years later, 516 B.C., the completion of the second temple. Temple's destroyed, temple's completed, 70 years. First deportation, right? First repatriation, 70 years. What does that tell you? It tells you that, and again, find these in the encyclopedia, same dates. It tells you that God's word is impressive and comes together with precise detail because he is God. And he often says in his prophecies, test me, see if I am true or not. That's how you know. Who should you follow? Not some false god, fish god, elephant god. We can talk about God, okay? So you, you get to understand that. 
What Cyrus also does is, if you look at his decree, he encourages the people to help the Jewish, the children of Israel, give, because, listen, it's a long journey. They're going to need food. They're going to need livestock. They're going to need money, uh, valuables as they go. It's 800, 900 miles without modern transportation. Not an easy feat. So verse 5, he continues, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all those whose spirits God had moved. So he not only stirs up the leader, the king, to show mercy because they couldn't leave without his approval, but he also stirs up his people, their hearts, their spirit. To me, I look at this as revival. You hear about revival. It was 100 years ago, 200 years ago. There could be revival in America today. And it starts with individuals and their hearts being stirred up. You know, again, in Christianity today, it's all about big. It's the show. It's the numbers. But revival is often, the Holy Spirit's not a showman. The Holy Spirit does it in individuals, in communities, in families, in neighborhoods. And then it starts to grow like wildfire. See what I'm saying? So he stirs them up to, they, they go and build a house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who are around them encourage them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the tre- treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400, and these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. So you see this, this blessing from Cyrus. And he basically says, hey, we, we have stuff here, these gold chalices and all kinds of things that Nebuchadnezzar stole from your fathers many years ago. Take these two. That's, this stuff belongs back in the temple. So my, my question to you is, who does that? How many of you start, have studied war? How many of you have studied battles? So when in history has a nation so powerful conquered other nations and nobody's there to oppose them because they are all powerful, when have you ever seen that nation say, oh, we, we feel bad for you. Here, take all this stuff. Here, leave our country. Oh, I know you were working and you were part of the, the, uh, so, the uh, societal structure, but, but just go. We'll give you money. We'll give your stuff back. You can rebuild. And hey, by the way, build a wall so that if you got this, decide to hole up there, our army can't get in and we lose our troops. Nobody does that. But God. See what I'm saying? And again, you look up history, it doesn't make any sense unless God is part of the equation, right? So we continue, chapter 2, 1 through 2. Now, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, uh, Relia, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misbar, Bigvi, Rehem, and Bana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. Now, I'm not going to go through all these names. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> I mean, there's literally dozens of names. If you want to read them on your own, you know, 
it's bad enough my eyesight is starting to go, and I, I, these names are like hard to read. I'm like, but so I'm not going to read the names. It's not important to us that we read all these names, but it was important to them. Remember, this is a historical document, okay? God's word back then was God's word. It was prophecy. It was history. It was religious records. And many times it served as government and historical records. So it was very important to them. You know what's important to us? The fact that they kept such meticulous notes. There's this weird teaching that says the lost tribes of Israel. The tribes weren't lost. They kept meticulous notes. Um, you know, the Hanukkah, uh, not the Hanukkah, Passover uh, has, is still being celebrated thousands of years. God wanted that integrity of that line to be maintained. Remember, the Messiah came through the line of Judah. So that integrity had to be maintained. So no matter where these people went, they kept their records. So for them, it was important. Verse 59, we're going to jump to 59. It says, and these were the ones who came up from Tel Mila, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Aden, and Immer. But they could not identify their father's house or the genealogy, so some could not. The Bible doesn't paint a perfect picture of everything. Okay? It, it even presents the mistakes and the omissions. It does that. It's very transparent. Whether they were of Israel, the sons of D Dilia, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda. 652, and the sons of the priests are the sons of Hebiah, the sons of Kaz, and the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, the list of names going down. But they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things in the service of the priests, till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. So if you say, hey, I'm a priest, but you couldn't prove your lineage, you couldn't serve in the temple. God was very clear. It had to be from a specific line. And again, Jesus was able to produce his line from Judah. Now think about this. The early church was almost 100% Jewish. So if Jesus, believe me, the religious leaders were trying to find anything to disqualify him because he was genuine, he was God, and they were ripping people off and they were losing their power base. So trust me, if they could find a reason to disqualify Jesus as he's not from the line of Judah, that popularity would have been short-lived. It wouldn't have lasted over three years till he crucified him. So even Jesus... You know, you can find images. In every book of the Bible, you can find Jesus in that Bible. Right? The Old Testament is Christ uh, veiled. The New Testament is Christ unveiled. So this is what's going on. Uh, verse 63, there was no Urim and Thummim. This is very interesting, and, and I'll go through it because the application, I think, is more important. The Urim and the Thummim were a device that, it was an external device that the high priest wore, and it was almost like, Okay, today we would say rolling dice. If, you, if a seven comes up, it means this. If a one comes up, it means that. But take, take the gambling aspect out of it. Um, they would cast lots. They would have a white stone and a black stone. The Urim and Thummim were very similar. It was a device that God used to speak to the high priest for him to tell him his will. His will. Now, 
I believe that the Urim and the Thummim were lost on purpose. And I'll tell you why. Because that was the old way of doing things. Remember, in the New Testament, which this isn't far from, a few hundred years from the New Testament, God started to change the way he communicated with people. So you got the Urim and the Thummim. In the book of Daniel, he spoke to the angel Gabriel. Gabriel and him had long discussions. Amazing. And he wrote it all down. Um, early in the New Testament, Mary, Joseph, okay, uh, the wise men, dreams and visions, right? So you start to see things become more personal now. Jesus Christ, they didn't need all that. When Jesus came and he started his ministry as the Son of God, people asked him questions. You didn't need all this other extraneous stuff. Jesus said, when I leave and I depart, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is huge. Every believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit. So we have today, we have, we have Christ, we have Holy Spirit, we have God's Word, and we have prayer. We don't need any of these, and people do this. You see this in maybe strange versions of Christianity. They consult with things, and it's almost like, I don't know, almost like witchcraft. Uh, Joseph Smith, the leader of the Mormons, did some very odd things. You know, he was a seer, and he did things that the Old Testament forbid. This is the New Testament. If he really was a Christian, then he would consult with God directly if God wanted him to do something. Okay, so this is what you have. You see this progression towards a closer relationship. I can, I could be, and sometimes it happens. I wake up at two in the morning. And I'm like, can't fall back to sleep. Oh Lord, please, I need to fall back to sleep. So it doesn't matter where it is, what time, what the situation is. He's always there. And there's not one time I think that, even my phone. I went to this new upgraded uh, version. They tell you, to, shaking your heads, like what iOS 10. What is with this program? I'm dropping calls all over the place. I just hope that if somebody doesn't really need me for a serious thing and we lose the call. But that doesn't happen with God, okay? He's always there to pick up the call. And there's never a sever in the line. And that's the beautiful thing. I have 100% confidence that whenever I call out to him, even if my wife is sleeping and in my mind I'm saying, I need to fall back to sleep, that he can read my thoughts. So, you know, it's... It's perfection now. It's beautiful. And it's what God always intended to happen. Last few verses and we'll be done. The whole congregation together was 52,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 men and women singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came into the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. So the priests and the Levites, some of the people and singers, the gatekeepers and the Nethanim, they were also servants, dwelt in the cities and all Israel in their cities. Again, a lot of pitfalls. Breaking new ground with God. Easy? Not always. Sometimes? Yeah. Sometimes in ministry I say to God, just, just give me a lob. Give me a softball on this one. This is going to be a tough one. Let me, let me hit it out of the park, you know? And, and sometimes he does. He'll throw you that, that lob. Uh, sometimes you get a curveball, you know what I'm saying? But God is good. But it doesn't mean he's going to make things easy for us all the time. So going back to that peace and prayer, I would just encourage us all that if we believe God is calling us to something, definitely test it with Scripture. Definitely pray about it. 
And don't always, looking f don't always look for those warm, fuzzy feelings because of that, I'm just going to say this because this is what they do and I, this isn't even part of my notes. But I've had Mormon missionaries come to my house uh, many years when I lived in East Brunswick. I was on a main road. And they'll tell you, well, pray to God and see if Mormonism is right. And pray to God and see if you get a warm feeling inside. And a lot of people became Mormons like that. But it's the power of suggestion. It's not real. You see what I'm saying? Um, sometimes God tells us about something to do and you know that he's with you you know that it's right but you know it's going to be difficult so just be careful of that type of doctrine it doesn't always hold true you know last sunday or last wednesday um i taught on this past wednesday i taught on elijah and elisha and the message title was struggling with god's will and here's where i want to encourage you because i don't want people to come to this church and put on a show I don't want us to pretend, and we're not going to, that everything we do is flawless and everything that you know, God asks us to do is just so easy. I think what that does is it discourages people because that's not reality. So on Wednesday night, the title was Struggling with God's Will, and Elijah was taken up to heaven, but Elisha, his young protege prophet, he was struggling. He really loved Elijah. They had a, a bond, and he didn't want to see him go. And Elisha, when Elijah was taken away, um, started to, to do things that Elijah did. He started to mimic. He was unsteady on his feet, but eventually he grew into the role. And I have to tell you, we run into that a lot. When I first became the pastor of this church, years ago, things were really difficult. And I didn't get the warm feeling, trust me. And I did want to quit a bunch of times. And like Elisha, eventually I, I grew into the role and I became more comfortable. You know, next year God could call me to do something else and I might be very uncomfortable again. But if it's God's will, it's God's will. So I want to encourage you. I'm not here to, to, to make everybody feel good all the time. You can look at, go on Sunday morning and look at those preachers for that. And all you're going to get is whipped cream. There's going to be no meat. There's going to be no substance to it. My job here and our job here is to, for us to grow in the word. And I think by the time, if you stick with us, by the end of this book, I believe that it will open up our hearts to hear better what God is saying. That thing that God has been asking us to do for such a long time, but we push it out because we know it doesn't feel good. We know what the implications are. We know what the consequences are in our social lives and what we do in our spare time. But it's good because it's God's will. And, and don't, don't get me wrong too, on the other extreme, I'm not saying that God loves to make us do difficult things to torture us. What he does is he says, this is going to be difficult, but I'm going to be with you. When um, Gideon fought the Midianites, it started with 135,000 of the enemy, and he had uh, something like 30,000 men, and God whittled him down to 300. And the reason being is because God said, when you get the victory, I don't want you to think it's for you, from you and your soldiers you're going to see that you're going to be so outnumbered that when you get the victory, you and everybody watching is going to know that it's me. It's me. It's what God says. Because God is so awesome, but we can't handle pride. I can't handle pride. When we get prideful, we get stupid. And, and pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So, listen, there was a lot of stuff in here that I put in here. A lot of slides, a lot of information, a lot of history. But this is just to springboard us into this book 
and hopefully to get us to a point in our personal lives where God is able to reach us easier because we're not so resistant and that we follow him and that we do his will. Isn't that what it's all about? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.